This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books, torts, cases, and contexts, volumes one and two, by Eric E. Johnson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International. This means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the author for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike, 4.0, International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Torts Lectures. This is lecture number two, and in this lecture, we'll be discussing an introduction to negligence. So the main cause of action in torts is negligence. In terms of its economic impact and Social importance, negligence, predominates. In its briefest form, the doctrine of negligence holds that if you are to blame through your carelessness for an injury to the person or property of another, you will be liable for the damage. Negligence is all about who should bear the burden of the loss that results from an injury-producing accident. It takes as a given that something bad has happened. Often it is something tragic. Negligence tries to make the best out of a bad situation by allowing the burden of the loss to be shifted from one party to another where appropriate. Fundamentally, the negligence cause of action is about compensation. It is not about punishment. It is possible to get punitive damages as an added remedy in a negligence lawsuit but doing so requires proving more than negligence. In particular, a punitive damages award requires showing that the defendant's conduct was reckless, wanton, or willful. But at its most basic level, the cause of action for negligence is about trying to allow a less blameworthy party to shift the burden of misfortune onto a more blameworthy person. Jury verdicts that run into the millions of dollars often include large punitive damage components, meaning more than negligence was at work. If a huge verdict is handed down merely on the basis of negligence alone, and thus comprises only what are called compensatory damages, then it is usually because the plaintiff will suffer lifelong chronic pain as permanent injuries that will make normal life impossible or will be unable to pursue what had been a very lucrative career. Or it might be a combination of these factors. For example, a multi-million dollar verdict consisting of only compensatory damages could well be possible and might even be expected for a young doctor whose career was cut short by a massive brain injury that has left her in constant severe pain and unable to eat, drink, or use the toilet without assistance. 
Now let's move to the elements and defenses for negligence. The law of negligence is both complicated and simple. Negligence is simple in terms of its central idea. That idea is that a party injured in an accident should be able to recover the loss from whomever is at fault for causing the accident. The core notion is one of responsibility. A good way to think about the law of negligence is that it is a formalized system for assigning blame. The elements of the prima facie case for negligence and the defenses that are allowed form a highly structured way for the courts to think about issues of responsibility and blame and thereby hold a party accountable. This is where negligence law gets complicated. Exactly what does it mean to say that someone is to blame for an injury? Here are the elements of a prima facie case for negligence. 1. The defendant owed a duty of care to the plaintiff. That is, the defendant had a reason to be careful. 2. The defendant's conduct constituted a breach of that duty of care. In other words, the defendant was not careful. 3. The defendant's conduct was an actual cause of the plaintiff's injury. Without the defendant's conduct, there would not have been an injury. 4. The defendant's conduct was a proximate cause of the plaintiff's injury. And 5. There was an injury to the plaintiff's person or property. An injury to the person here generally means the person's body, and property means something tangible. This way of dividing up the question of blame in the case of accidents is not a logical necessity. Other people could have come up with other systems. In fact, it's not hard to argue that other systems would be better. Regardless, this is the system we have. Plausibly, a court could say that the negligent cause of action consists of just two elements. One, a breach of a duty of care owed to the plaintiff. Two, an injury that was caused thereby. While this formulation looks different, since it is two elements instead of five, look closely and you will see that it is actually the same thing, just with various parts lumped together. You may be tempted to ask about the official list of elements of the cause of action for negligence. There is no official list. As a common law subject, negligence is the product of many, many different courts, all reading each other's work, but with no one really in charge. Add to that the fact that the doctrine evolves over time. The bottom line is that in learning torts, you have to pay attention to concepts more than labels. Now going back to the list of the five elements we just discussed, you might think that the concept of duty of care seems strange and unnecessary. However, you will see that this element helps to filter out a lot of cases where it would seem unfair for the plaintiff to be able to recover. In particular, the duty of care concept helps filter out many cases where the plaintiff's injury seems too indirectly connected with the defendant's conduct. 
That the duty of care element would do this is strange, since the proximate cause element also helps filter out cases where there is an indirect connection between the plaintiff's injury and the defendant's conduct. The fact is, the elements of negligence contain considerable room for overlap. In fact, the conceptual overlap between the duty of care element and the proximate causation element is at the heart of what is likely the most famous torts case of all time, that is, Paul's Graph versus Long Island Railroad. An alternative to the prima facie elements would be for every case to be decided on its own, with a judge listening to both sides and simply determining what is fair. And that is a very plausible way things could be done. But the project of the common law is to build a body of doctrine that helps to ensure that like cases will be decided alike, no matter who the judge is and who the parties are. By setting out a formal system, rather than depending on intuition and a rough sense of justice, then the courts can avoid arbitrary decisions, achieving a rule of law rather than a rule of persons. Throughout your study of torts, you can constantly ask yourself whether negligence law, through its structure of elements, is achieving that goal. At times, you may find that the determination with regard to any individual element in any given case seems to be decided arbitrarily, not according to any system, but just according to the judge's rough sense of justice. In fact, One way of defining the proximate causation element is that it is a placeholder for a rough sense of justice. At the end of the day, the use of individual elements within the prima facie case for negligence reflects the common law's incomplete project of striving to avoid arbitrariness. The elements give us a helpful structure to organize our thinking about negligence. Alongside the prima facie elements of the negligence case are the principal defenses to negligence, which include comparative negligence. With the defense of comparative negligence, if the plaintiff's injury is at least partly attributable to the plaintiff's own negligence, then the defendant will not be liable to the plaintiff for the full amount of the plaintiff's damages. If the plaintiff's relative fault is very large in comparison to the defendant, then, depending on the jurisdiction, the plaintiff may be barred from any recovery whatsoever. And contributory negligence. The defense of contributory negligence is a more defendant-friendly version of comparative negligence. It is used in a minority of jurisdictions in lieu of comparative negligence. Under contributory negligence, if the plaintiff's own negligence contributed even slightly to the injuries sued upon, the plaintiff is completely barred from any recovery. An assumption of the risk. Despite the existence of a prima facie case for negligence, the plaintiff will not be able to recover if the plaintiff willingly assumed the potential burden that something bad might happen. Such an assumption of the risk can be implied by the circumstances 
or expressed in words, written or oral. In addition to these defenses, there are generic defenses available. Defenses that are available in all torts cases. These include the statute of limitations, which causes you to lose your claim if you wait too long to file. There are also some unique defenses that are only applicable to certain kinds of defendants, such as charities and governmental entities. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.